you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. First things first, I wanted to let everyone know that as of this episode, I'm going to be going to every two weeks as opposed to every week. There's a few reasons for this. For one, it seems to me that's about how long the last several episodes have been taking anyway. I have access to a lot more sources than I did before, so there's physically more stuff to to sift through. And I also want to keep doing as good and as thorough a job with these stories as I can. I'm excited about my second year's podcast, or, well... I guess actually third, technically. I have some interesting stories on my list of upcoming topics, a few of which I'm especially eager to tackle. Anyway, on with today's story. Even a cursory examination of late 19th century newspapers reveals a plethora of ghost stories. Some of these are credulous, and some of these are dismissive and poke fun at the fact that people actually believed this. In addition, there was the phenomena of so-called ghost-playing, Ghost players, pranksters in some cases, and more sinister sorts of offenders in others, would disguise themselves as specters in order to gain some sort of thrill out of scaring people, or to carry out their criminal undertakings. This is what, in my opinion, may have been responsible for many of the spring Jack encounters. The following story is from Brooklyn, New York, which at this time was not yet part of New York City and was its own municipality. It was in the southern part of that city at about 1.20 a.m. early on the morning of Friday, August 10, 1894, that a train headed back to Brooklyn from Coney Island headed north along the Sea Beach Line. On the train was the superintendent of the rail line, Richard Lark. Passing beneath 20th Street overpass, the train began to slow as it neared 19th Street, very much the same spot where, the next year, there was to be a train accident, which injured 55 people. The following account was given by Superintendent Lark and was quoted in the Brooklyn Eagle for August 11th. We were going very fast because the crowd of picnickers were slow about getting on and delayed us. We had just passed Woodlawn, the only station between Coney Island and Mapleton, without stopping and had rounded the curb when Fireman Van Pelt pulled my coat sleeve and pointed ahead over to the left of the track. I saw what seemed to be a tall white figure. It seemed motionless at first, and you may believe me or not, but I'll take my oath that it was standing, or appeared to be standing, just where last Sunday's suicide occurred. It was tall and shadowy-like. It had the appearance of a substance gradually melting into a filmy white nothing, and seemed to be covered with a long, white, filmy veil. 
Two seconds after I saw it, it began moving over toward the railroad track. It moved slowly at first, waving its long draped arms. I could see distinctly as we approached nearer that it motioned to us, gesticulating as one would try as one would do when trying to stop a train. Engineer Mowen then saw it. He began to blow his whistle with a succession of sharp toots and put on brakes. The thing didn't get out of the way, though it was careful to avoid the light of the headlamp, and the train was brought to a standstill. Just as the train stopped, the thing glided off the track and skimmed along toward the woods, all the time gesticulating as if motioning someone to follow. It disappeared in the woods. The suicide to which he refers took place just under a week before, on the afternoon of August 5th, and it was a minor mystery in itself for a time. It was at about 11.20 that morning that a dark-haired woman in her 20s, wearing a white top, green skirt, and brown hat, disembarked from a Sea Beach Line train at the Mapleton Station. Benjamin Chamberlain, who was in the vicinity of the station, said that the woman strolled south along the railroad tracks, walking into some trees about 15 or 20 feet beyond where 19th Street passed above the tracks. Shortly after this, he heard a gunshot. Chamberlain summoned the police, and when they arrived, they found the woman lying dead, shot through the heart with a 32 caliber bullet. The gun lay nearby, as did a bottle of carbolic acid. It seemed that the woman might have poisoned herself before shooting herself. When the body was removed to the morgue, police had the task of determining who, exactly, the dead woman was. One oddity was that, that, one oddity was that at four, this, four that afternoon, before the body was even there, a tall man with a black mustache entered the mortuary and informed the attendants that there had been a suicide at Bath Beach, referring to the one whose body was to be brought in only a few minutes later. That man departed without giving a name, though. A man named Frank A. Small, an employee of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, at that time performing in Coney Island, came to the morgue to view the body, and upon viewing it, said cryptically, Yes, that is the woman I'm looking for. I can't tell you her name right now, but we'll send a friend who will be able to tell you all about her. Small left, and the friend he promised to send never materialized. Two women who came in said that she worked at a shop with them. They thought she was a German and that her name was Mary Barnetti or Bonetta, which are clearly two very German-sounding last names. She was also identified by one visitor as the little woman from Hansen Place. It wasn't until three days later that a woman named Helena Barning came to the morgue. On the morning of August 8th, an anonymous letter was sent to her husband, who was at that time not at home. The letter was accompanied by some newspaper clippings about the mysterious suicide, and read, The enclosed slips, I thought, relate to your sister Maggie. I leave it to you to attend to the matter. I shall do nothing further in the matter. When Helena arrived, she swiftly identified the body as that of her husband's sister, Margaret O'Barning. She had been born in Germany, she said, but other than that, Helena knew very little about her method of life. Police now had a name for the mystery woman, and based on this, soon discovered that she was, that she was resident at a boarding house in Prospect Heights. The inhabitants of Nine Hanson Place, the boarding house in question, were inclined to be very reticent when questioned about the suicide. They at first denied that Miss Barning lived there, even though any number of friends, relatives, and neighbors confirmed that she did. Eventually, the landlady, a Mrs. Cameron, admitted that she did. 
The reluctance of the inhabitants of Number 9 Hansen Place to admit anything about the case was puzzling. It could be that there was some illegality involved with the running of the boarding house. Somehow the name of Frank Small came up. Mrs. Cameron confirmed that he was a friend of her son and that he was a frequent visitor to Miss Barning, although when questioned later, he denied that he was involved with her romantically. There was another mysterious event associated with the suicide of Margaret Barning. Sometime between August 10th and 11th, the night of Lark sighting, a large white stone was placed at the site. The mysterious marker was a Belgian paving block of regulation shape and size. Nobody knows how it got there. A cross has been hacked on the uppermost side, perhaps with a cold chisel or, perhaps, with the ghost's fingernails. Underneath this stone were found four others, little round cobbles, which had been used to hold down the ends of the sheet which covered the suicide. The grass underneath is covered with red and black clots of blood. This is exactly where the people on the train saw the ghost. There was, in fact, some speculation that what the train's passengers had seen was actually a very real person, and that it was whoever may have placed the stone monument at the death site. That person, whoever he may be, said a railroad policeman, placed that marked stone where it is after midnight on Thursday. You may say it was an example of conscience work. He probably used a dark lantern in his work, and the moving light is what was seen. And so, with the identity of the suicide now determined, we'll return to the ghost narrative. Hey, did you know that in the original Bloody Mary ritual, you had to walk backwards up a flight of stairs? Oh really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the purpose was to catch a glimpse of your future husband's face. Really? I wish I could find my future husband that easily. Honestly, all I really want to do now is drink a Bloody Mary. Well, how about we go make some Bloody Marys while you tell me more fun facts about Bloody Mary? Join us every week at Booze and Spirits, where we make our favorite drinks and tell each other our favorite paranormal stories. Find us under Booze and Spirits on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and Podbean. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Booze and Spirits. John Hennessy, a coachman employed by a local man named Jerry Lott, who lived at 65th Street and 18th Avenue, was quoted in the same Brooklyn Eagle article that detailed the Lark sighting. I'm the first man, I believe, who ran against that ghost Thursday morning at about 12.30 o'clock, and that was a whole 24 hours before the train stopped out out here to let the thing out of the way. I was awakened by hearing a tapping at my window pane. It was gentle at first. Then it got louder and oftener. I woke up with a kind of start, but lay right still. I thought it was birds at first, but soon found it was no bird sound. Then I began to get up, and as I stirred about, the tapping stopped, and I heard a brushing sound against the window, and then all was still. Next morning, when I read the ghost had been seen by the train folks, I knew that's what I'd heard. It was said that Jerry Laud himself also saw the ghost. But when reporters came around to speak to Hennessy, he decided it wouldn't do to acknowledge the presence of a ghost in his neighborhood and busied himself elsewhere. Saturday night, August 11th, saw the first ghost hunt, which was really more of a gang of sightseers. This hunt, however, beat an ignominious retreat on first sight of the apparition. The hunters included a railroad employee named A.D. Maple Dorham and a friend of his named John C. Myers, as well as a man named McGinnis. 
According to Maple Dorham, who inherited a real estate and insurance company in later years, the efforts that night failed to catch it due to the cowardice of his comrades. Some white object was seen, which caused John Myers to panic and run off. In the course of doing so, he ran into McGinnis, and the two men started fighting. The next night, a work train was idling near the site where the monument had been raised at about 1 a.m. Another train had just passed when one of the workers, a man named Mike Klooch, yelled to the others and pointed toward the woods. A panic ensued, and the engineer of the train, a Mr. Kirk, said, They had me pretty well worked up myself, and while I don't believe in ghosts, I was very glad when the second section of that train passed. I made short work of getting away from there, I tell you. If another work train is to run at night, I'll find it a convenient place to be sick. No more spooky hours in a spooky place for me. The conductor, a Mr. Hilger, said that he saw the ghost rise up from underneath the monument and run across the railroad tracks. Two servant girls at the home of Michael McCormick, which overlooked the spot where the ghost was reputed to arise, also said that they saw a white figure that night. And matters were quiet for several days. On Wednesday night, August 15th, another hunting expedition organized by A.D. Maple Dorham almost took place. His motive? To capture the ghost and put it in a Coney Island museum. As it was noted in the Brooklyn Standard Union for August 14th, 1894, this ghost will no doubt take care not to be caught, for there is quite a difference between working 20 hours a day in a Coney Island museum and 10 or 15 minutes duty on the green ground in Mapleton. He planned to station men all around the stone marker, which was by now pretty well accepted as the spot where the ghost manifested. His plan was to outfit the men with bicycles, so that when the ghost not only walked but flew like a scared eagle, it could be chased down. However, the plan fell through when most of the hunters chickened out. At the last minute, their nerve dropped as fast as the rain. But despite the failure of this hunt to manifest, over 200 people paraded past the stone marker that evening. On one occasion, a passenger train was stopped at the 19th Street crossing. Four men from Montana disembarked from the train at this time. They were George W. Irvin, H.C. Carney, Thomas A. Marlowe, and F.L. Babcock. Soon afterwards, three gunshots were heard to ring out. As Irvin later said, I looked and saw something that made me feel like a corpse. Over yonder in that field was a woman dressed in white, and her eyes were looking like they were on fire. Babcock started to run, and Carney pulled his gun and fired quick. And then the thing just rose in the air and started for us. We started too, you bet your life. But Carney took another shot, and then the thing swung around to the left and seemed to fly through the air and was catching up with us. It was Friday night before another hunting party departed. This party consisted of the by now mildly famous Jerry Lott and, other t and several others. Though the men gathered at the marker, they encountered nothing until hearing something like an owl, which was probably... Shocking, I know. An owl. One man named James Kelly said that at about 1.45 a.m. he saw the ghost issuing from a stable yard. And the other men concurred that they saw it staring wistfully at the stone marker. A railroad flagman nearby said he heard a wailing and then saw the ghost, which vanished as a train went past. Other flagmen, however, were certain that the wailing was only the sounds made by a cat at a nearby home. Another man named James Martin encountered a very human apparition that same night. First, he said, 
something came whistling through the air and hit me in the chest. And he saw what appeared to be the ghost. He went after it and chased it toward Jerry Lott's barn. It dropped a sheet and the prankster made his escape. The object which had initially struck Martin proved to be a bar of soap. The most famous of the hunting parties was mounted on Tuesday, August 21st. On that date, five men, New York attorney John L. Burley, Professor Henry Farquhar, author William H. Ballou, an unnamed Brooklyn Eagle reporter, and renowned paleontologist Edward Drinker Cope, by that fairly dire financial situation and near the end of his life. Although highly reported upon, the hunt was fairly uneventful. The hunters saw a number of men who approached the stone and fired guns at nothing, and at one point, they witnessed a strange light on the side of a barn belonging to Jerry Lott. It looked like the light of a dark lantern, the newspaper account of the hunt stated, thrown from one barn against another. As this was the same area to which James Martin pursued the ghost prankster only a few days before, the possibility of a hoax by Jerry Lott or another associate needs to be considered. For several days after this, the ghost seemingly vanished. As was snidely remarked, the ghost did not mind bullets or bulldogs or sticks, stones or clubs, but it drew the line at scientists. On August 23rd, a letter signed from the ghost hunters CS and FR arrived at newspaper offices. It read, To the reporter of the eagle that was out there to see the ghost Thursday night, the two young fellows that came in from the island are going out Thursday night at minute to 12 o'clock. And whether there is any such thing as a ghost, and we hope that we will see you out there to chase up the ghost, we got within 25 feet of the place and watched the ghost rise. The ghost swan song came sometime around August 25th. Several firemen from Windsor Hose Company No. 5 in Flatbush went out at about 11.30 p.m. to look for the phantom. When they got to the spot, there, 20 feet in the air, swayed a white-robed figure, presenting a ghostly figure in the moonlight. One of the firemen, William Cross, shot at it. To his surprise, the ghost tumbled to the ground. It was soon found that it was a sort of scarecrow or mannequin. It was rigged up of straw in the form of a cross, covered with a sheet, and was suspended on a wire that ran from the top of a tree gradually down to the ground. The whole thing was suspended from a makeshift pulley as well, in such a way that the so-called ghost could be manipulated from the ground by pulling the wires. Writing in the Brooklyn Times Union in 1930, though, journalist John A. Heffernan says that it was actually the firemen who had conducted the hoax, rather than discovered it. And another journalist, writing in 1943, stated that the dummy utilized in this hoax was, indeed, kept at that firehouse for years. And with this, the story of the Mapleton ghost went the way such things usually do. One hoax revealed, the entire thing passes from newspapers, save for occasional references in years gone by columns. On my second Patreon episode, which should be out shortly after this one gets posted, I'll delve into a few other accounts of ghost playing from New York. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, 
post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. Particularly for teen or unexplained cases, I have plenty of true crime possibilities on my list of ideas. For right now, anyway. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.